Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If pushed to explain what exactly makes the Shelby Daytona Coupe so extraordinary, it's the back. Most would be at a loss. Not us, it's the back. It's the back. It isn't as simple as its brake melting engine or its superlative looks, nor is it about the win at Le Mans. It's all of those and more. Mostly the back. Its quality comes from the way it can be driven, how it was created, and how it was designed. The story of the car is well told and filmed, but the part played by its designer, Peter Brock, has been long overshadowed. Like his Australian counterpart, Peter Brock designed fast cars. Unlike the Aussie with the same name, though, he did not get a chance to race them, nor is there any indication he ever welded crystals onto them. Remember that? Yeah, that was freaking weird. That was weird. Today, we'll take a look at California's own Peter Brock. Who was the designer of Shelby's iconoclastic Daytona Coupe? How did he get such an important assignment at 27 years old? Oh, I haven't done crap. What did he do after the historic events that followed? All that and more this week on Pass Gas about the other Peter Brock and the Shelby Daytona Coupe. Pass Gas Podcast. It's about cars. It's not about ports. Guys. This is one of my favorite cars in the world. This is one of my favorite cars. This is one of my favorite stories. One of my favorite stories as well. Been wanting to tell this one on the podcast for a long time now. Yeah, this is one of my favorite parts of my favorite story yes. in all of automotive lore. And yes, I tell you yes. guys, in the past seven years, we've covered a lot of automotive A lore. lot of stuff. Yes, yeah, so many. Welcome to Pass Gas, everybody. On video, once again, thanks to uh, the comments you guys gave. We're filming this one. Sorry, listeners, but if you're listening, thanks for listening. Yeah, I'm glad you know that I mean? we're on video because I can do physical bits again like this. Oh, he's moving his arms. Oh my God. Or they, don't and tell head. them. Don't tell them I want to push him over okay. to the YouTube, okay? Yeah. So if you want to see crap. really wow. funny physical bits like this. He's doing stuff I've never seen before. Go on over to the YouTube so you're not missing out on half the humor. <laughs> I will also, Nolan and I will also be using our hands a lot when we're reading. So, so Yes, I'm you, pointing at the screen, following <laughs> yeah. along. If you want to see, see this riveting movement, uh, you, you can You want to see some extra expressive hand yeah. movements like I'm doing right now, head over to Donut Podcast That's YouTube right. channel. That's right. Watch it. Those and I'll voices. be doing stuff with my hands that no one can see, <laughs> oh, yeah. no. but people on video, 
that were watching the video have to guess. Yeah, he's oh, doing wow. all kinds of stuff under the That's table. Sweet. Yeah, uh, those voices you're hearing are James Pumphrey. Well, if these are the voices they're hearing, what are the voices I'm hearing? <laughs> and Joe Weber stretching it out over there. What's up, Wink Wink Nash? Good to see you again. My name is Nolan Sykes. Thanks again for listening. Let's at get James Pumphrey. At James Pumphrey. Yeah, yeah sure. follow me. I'm at a plateau. At Joe My Weber. socials are infuriating. It's because right we don't now. make shorts, James. We don't make shorts. We don't do reels. We're too busy making other videos. Yeah, we make content for the main channel, so don't make us suffer. Yeah. yeah. If anything, I can't follow me because I the stress of having thirteen thousand followers. Is getting to it's me. really getting to him. So Joe, please, you shave more, a couple hundred. You should do more cook, cooking stuff. I like the cooking streams. You want me to cook ants on a log? Yeah, live? Dude, go yeah. cook ants on a log live. Do yeah. the old stuff you used to do. I miss quarantine social, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, uh, my relationship was falling apart and I needed extra things to distract me. Yeah, yeah. that stuff was yeah. fun. Yeah, for me oh, as totally. an, as an audience member. <laughs> You haven't made a single roast. I do want to see. I do want to see Joe mess with the uh, Dutch oven, though. Yeah, I do, dude. Here would be a fun challenge under the covers. (laughs) You give me. (laughs) You give me a box of five random ingredients on Friday. Yeah, Saturday. Oh, I do a Facebook live or you know Instagram live. I open it up. I don't know what's in it beforehand, Mm -hmm. and I have to make something out of it. Yeah, okay. Wood, marbles, coins, (laughs) (laughs) a poster. Yeah, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna spend like fifty dollars on ingredients for something I won't even eat. Let's spend three thousand dollars and see what he does. (laughs) It's just like so much gold flake. (laughs) See if he can monetize. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into our story this week. Let's talk about one Peter Brock and one of the coolest race cars ever. Ever. Peter Albert Brock, born in 1936, takes his middle name from his grandfather, E.J. Hall. E.J. founded the Hall Scott Motor Car Company in 1910. During its run, his research led to an understanding of the importance of the gradual opening and closing of valves and its effect on valve spring durability in high-speed engines. His research had a direct impact on not only the Duesenberg race engines he was working on, but built our understanding of modern performance engines. Thank you, E.J. Hall. Finally, we get to talk about doozies. Yeah, finally, some doozy talk. Doozy talk. You're welcome to... Welcome to Doozy Talk. Welcome to Doozy Talk. 105.1 The Rock. Welcome back to Doozy Talk. We're in the studio with Tommy Lee. And the skink. (laughs) (laughs) All right, anyway. Albert... Ended up being conscripted by the U.S. government at the onset of World War I to help develop an airplane engine that could rival those in England, France, and Germany. And as a result of this work, he was a co-designer of America's most important contribution to aeronautical technology, the Liberty Engine. EJ's Liberty Engine was mass-produced by automakers Ford, Lincoln, Packard, Marmon, and Buick before the armistice. All in all, they built 20,748 Liberty 12s, which ensured their widespread use in the 20s and 30s. But it was one of the four Ford-produced Liberty 12s that would later make history as it powered the Navy Curtis NC-4, the first aircraft to cross the Atlantic. Is this the guy that made the EJ-20 as well? I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah, EJ-20 is the best engine since the Liberty. (laughs) With all this kind of wrenching in the family, it's not surprising then that a 12-year-old Peter Brock was already working in the garage. Peter's neighbor had a two-seater MGTC and would bring the boy out to races. When he realized that the drivers worked on their own cars at a garage not far from his grammar school, Peter convinced the owner to let him work there for free. During his time at the shop, he watched the construction and fabrication of a supercharged MG Special. In a profound way, Peter's exposure to this kind of construction at such an impressionable age would pay massive dividends in his career. In his own words, Peter described this time as, quote, a pretty amazing thing for a young kid to see. The whole thing come together and formed the aluminum body and built the engine and put the supercharge on and all that trick stuff. That influence there really got me going with my interest in automobiles and my desires for the race car. It also taught Peter about the reality on working on race cars and the kind of technical know-how one needs to maintain them. 
Peter would eventually buy his own 1949 MGTC from that shop, though it would require extensive engine work to make it run. Peter would often sleep under the fenders of his MG, thrilled to be working on such a gorgeous piece of machinery. That's cute. And was, a, how big was he? He was like <laughs> 27. <12. laughs> and a hint of what was to come, Peter decided to paint it to match the U.S. racing colors blue and white. After finishing high school, Peter decided to continue his craft by majoring in engineering at Stanford. Whoa. Hey, now. I didn't go to college. Okay. But if I went to college, I'd want it to be Stanford. Stanford's that quad is over there in Palo Great. Alto. Yeah, man. I wish I, I kind of wish I went to Stanford. Hey, Stanford, if anyone here's at Stanford and you guys want to give me an honorary degree, I'd gladly accept. <laughs> but that takes all the fun out of going to Stanford. Mm-mm, I don't, I just want to be an alum. What about the quad? Oh, am I? Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'd go back to the quad. <laughs> <laughs> Soon after starting at Stanford, however, Peter dropped out. In his words, quote, When I got into college, I realized college wasn't something you're going to get anything out of, and it's a whole screwed-up system that doesn't work. I had heard about this other school in the Los Angeles area called Art Center for Designing Cars. Peter. I take it back. <laughs> Peter Brock didn't like it. I don't want to go to college. <laughs> F you, Stanford. I'll still take the degree. Peter moved back to Los Angeles and went to what is now known as the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. Nice. I love Pasadena. I think that's where Chip Foose went, maybe? Probably. After checking out some of the teachers and classes, he went to the admissions office and asked to enroll. And famously, when asked for his portfolio, Peter asks, What's a portfolio? (laughs) He then walked out to his car and drew some hot rod sketches in a (laughs) three-ring binder and returned. And Peter Brock... Was admitted. Oh my uh, god! I think things were just easier back then. I just then. think there were less people that were trying to do anything. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, you actually kind of made an effort. Dude, back then, most people were like, "Yeah, my grandpa worked in a hole. My dad worked in a hole. I'm gonna work in a hole." They had a vacation house on Montauk. <laughs> yeah, and they, yeah, and they had like <laughs> they owned four houses. Retired at fifty-seven. Yeah. I retired at fifty-seven Died from at working 59. in a hole, and yeah. they gave me a Rolex and twelve dogs. <laughs> You got a Rolex for every year you worked in the hole. <laughs> it's a nice hole. It's a union hole. It was steady. It was steady work. <laughs> nice, steady work. It's honest. <laughs> During his time at design school, Peter was also working in the garage. Peter was a racer at heart. And in high school, sold the MG and started looking for a faster car. One that he didn't have to sleep under. Yeah. After buying a 1946... <laughs> that, that car is clingy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After buying a 46 Ford convertible... Peter began customizing the car, sketching modifications at school, and working on them in his free time. In his binder. In his binder. Free ring. Nice. When he was finished, the Ford had the nose of a 1941 Hudson, two 1950 Mercury grill shells to make a radiator intake, a rear end restyled by recessing the license plate into the rear pan, Push bars replacing the old wraparound style bumpers and a 1954 Cadillac engine connected to a 1938 LaSalle transmission. Oh, Whoa. I can picture that. I can picture that whole car in my head. Yeah, it's oh, like yeah. that Johnny Cash <laughs> I was song. Just about to say. If I knew any of the words of that song, that'd be good. Sick yeah. <laughs> Topping it all off, guys, of course, the car was painted Arctic white with dark blue Cunningham racing stripes. Briggs Cunningham, the guy who invented racing stripes. <laughs> one of the first, if not the first, the first one wheelhouse episode right. that Nolan right. ever hosted on the Donut YouTube yes, channel sir. was about racing stripes. Go check guy. it out to see a young Nolan before a young shaven we <laughs> crushed his soul. <laughs> yeah. We worked together on There audience. is an optimism in early Nolan videos that is <laughs> it's yeah, man. Different. Look, we don't have to get into it right now. <laughs> uh, I mean hundreds of videos, an acquisition, yeah. countless friends left along the way. Yeah. It's been a tough ride. No end in sight. I'm ready to go on a vacation <laughs> again. No uh, end in sight. The car that Peter was working on was nicknamed the Fordalac and would win the Oakland Roadster Show, which is now the Grand National Roadster Show and the longest running indoor car show in the world. He won it t- 
two years in a row with wow. this funky looking car. I'm back. <laughs> Peter looks like he could be my grandpa. Well, he could. I guess he could. <laughs> that's what he looks like. Oh, yeah. That is absolutely your grandpa. Dude, that's yeah, weird. maybe he's your grandpa. He might be. Whoa. That's bizarre. Nolan's grandpa is well, Peter Brock. I'm also like, probably, I, I, I think I'm like the average looking white guy because I have a lot of doppelgangers on the internet mm-hmm. so maybe it's just a case of that but you're more handsome than anyone though yeah you're more handsome than that's least... what's messed up can we talk about this for a yeah, second every when, time every it's like time, Nolan yeah. hey Nolan I, this I deal you? with this too and it's yeah. like sloth from the Goonies yeah you know yeah. Man, I, any guy with a beard yeah. some upwards of like 5,000 pounds everyone's like uh, pump yeah. is this you yeah I'm like no. it's like no this I've, is this is a note to anyone who it's thinks like, it's hurtful. a good way to break the ice with us in DMs Make sure the person you're comparing us to is more handsome than us. Yes. yes I know it's hard to find pictures of please. anybody who fits that description, but please. I would take Pete Brock as a compliment. It's never it's flattering. It's never flattering. No, it's not. And if it's I not. see one more people Actually, person one sending guy. me that meme of the little kid named Joe Weber, it's a meme, but it's like this kid on Facebook named Joe Weber. Yeah. Okay. Talking mad. Mad. To this beautiful woman, but it's very funny. I get sent that eight times a week. That's well, I haven't been sent it at all. Send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one occasion where I got tagged in one of those, and the the dude was like yoked as hell. Yeah. And I was like, all right, yeah, yeah, I'll take that. Sure. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, yeah, that is me. Uh, it looks just. Like, oh, is that me? Yeah, that is me. Anyway, I digress. Mm-hmm. At 19 and five semesters into his design school education, Peter ran out of money, but during his classes, Peter had developed a relationship with Chuck Jordan, the director of General Motors. What? <laughs> Chuck would come to the design school to scout uh, students, and the two struck up a close enough friendship that Peter decided to call Chuck looking for work. Yeah, obviously. The next day, Chuck had Peter on a plane to Detroit and brought him onto GM's design team at 19 years <laughs> old. <laughs> <laughs> I saw those drawings you did in your car. (laughs) But I don't know why millennials just don't, like, work harder. Yeah. In that moment, Peter became one of the youngest designers in the company's history at 19. What, dude, 19 years old? I was flunking out of northern Arizona at the time. I was flunking out of UWM in Milwaukee. I slept outside in front of a comedy club (laughs) because the train shut down and I couldn't get back to Long Beach. Peter arrived at GM at a particularly opportune time. Yeah. They're like, hey, want a house too? (laughs) Here's a thoroughbred dog. In late 1956, GM was getting completely out of racing and performance. Uh, we've covered the reason why in a number of episodes. It was a big old wreck and a bunch of people pulled out of racing. Uh, the AMA ban, as it was known, was the Automobile Manufacturers Association uh, response to a catastrophic accident at the 1955 24 Hours of Le Mans, where a car exploded and crashed into the crowd. A bunch of people were injured. A bunch of people died. A bunch it's of people died. Gruesome. Do not watch the footage. It is yeah, pretty it's, crazy. It's Hindenburg-y. Yeah. Yep. The ban was a gentleman's agreement that the major U.S. car companies would stop participating in racing or motorsports of any kind in order to keep congressional pressure from being applied to safety standards. I have a feeling that every deal they made back then was a gentleman's agreement. Everything's a gentleman's agreement because women weren't allowed in the office. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, like it's, it's also like, all right, we won't race. Just don't pay attention to how safe the cars for the road are. (laughs) (laughs) So don't look. (laughs) Okay. Sounds good. But while the Corvette program was officially being shuttered, unofficially, the head of design, Bill Mitchell, moved the program away from the top floors down to Research Studio B Mm. in a basement at GM's Warren, Michigan Technical Center. Had black lights, had (laughs) beer on tap, keg. Ping pong table. Ping pong table. Giant table. Velvet paintings. It had, they went to David Buster's when it was closing down and they got a Papa shot. They had air hockey there. Mm -hmm. It was sick. (laughs) Peter said Bill was, quote, not going to let management destroy everything that had been built up. 
in effect while Peter was coming to GM right as it pivoted away from racing, he was unofficially able to participate in its most exciting racing design elements almost immediately, albeit secretly. Damn. Everything's just like working out. You know? I know. This 19. Yeah. Lucky guy. I mean, he's talented too. So it's opportunity plus preparation Damn. equals luck. Listen, let's be honest. None of us are qualified to have our jobs That's either. True. I wouldn't get hired today. <laughs> yeah. I don't think. <laughs> no, you wouldn't make it. No. <laughs> Mitchell had made a few young designers GM's unofficial Corvette team. After seeing the Alfa Romeo Disco Volante at the 1957 Turin Auto Show, he informed the young designers that it was the aesthetic direction of the next Corvette. Mm. One of the positive aspects of using younger designers was their knowledge of emerging techniques, one of which was utilization of fiberglass. <laughs> this allowed them to keep costs minimal in the modeling process. This is the equivalent of like a kid knowing how to use t like a computer. Now. I like yeah. that they're like, hey, see that other car that those guys made over there? That's what we're going to make too. Yeah, that's what we're going <laughs> to make. At the direction of Mitchell, Peter drew the initial sketch for what would eventually become the 1963 Corvette Stingray. Though the 1957 drawing is more stylized than the production car and it's missing signature touches like the production car split rear window, it's fairly clear that Peter Brock came up with the building blocks for that iconic car. That is insane, That's dude. sick, dude. He's that was his he's first old, car? He's 11 years old. <laughs> That's so he's crazy. He's like, it's almost done, but I got to sleep under its fenders. You know, sleep. It's right. <laughs> he wasn't even legally allowed to wear long pants yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. By the time the Stingray hit the market, Peter had long left Detroit and was very busy on arguably his biggest professional achievement. Starting his 401k. His. <laughs> That's insane, dude. This guy's so the young. The tweet that shocked the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's so crazy. This guy's so young, he's already designed one of the most iconic cars yeah. of all time. He's tight, dude. He's like Donald Glover. Yeah. Writing for 30 Rock when he's still in college. Childish Gambino. Really was a child. Namino. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, are you the new Gambino? I think so. We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Peter's love of design wasn't pure, though, as his desire was always to race the cars he helped conceive. So it was unsurprising that he left GM and returned to Southern California soon after turning 21. 21 being the sports car club of America's minimum age to get a racing license. This guy has priorities. While Peter was rebuilding his personal recently purchased race car, a trashed Cooper Monaco that had been driven at Le Mans, 
He also found work at Max Balchowski's garage. Max was a top builder of California racing specials at the time and a local blue-collar hero with his cars competing against wealthy owners' Maseratis and Ferraris. While Peter was learning from and working for Max Balchowski, he was also living, according to Carol Shelby, about 200 yards from Turn 9 at Riverside Raceway. Peter's introduction to Carol Shelby came as the venerated driver was finishing his final races upon the advice of his doctors. Remember that Shelby's heart was not doing so well, and he asked Max Balchowski to borrow his ground-up, custom-built, Buick-powered Old Yaller to finish the end of the 1959-1960 season and his driving career. After working all day at Balchowski's garage, Peter would work on his Cooper Monaco and test it at Riverside. Very lax gate protocol there. <laughs> Carroll Shelby was also there working to create the Carroll Shelby School of High Performance Driving, and soon after, Peter became the first paid employee of Shelby American, running Shelby's Racing School, as well as creating the logos, merchandise, ads, and car liveries. That's a full plate. It's yeah. a lot of stuff. While Peter ran the racing school, Shelby was creating the iconic Cobra Roadster. His goal was to import a chassis from a European manufacturer and install a big American V8, allowing Shelby American to be competitive in international racing. A necessary side effect, of course, would be to sell the cars to keep the business operational. When he did strike a deal with AC Cars over in England, Chevrolet refused to provide him with V8s, fearing competition with the Corvette. Big mistake. Ford was unveiling a new small block V8, and the seed was planted for what was to come. Peter was an early test driver for the Cobra Roadster, and it's important to note that at this point, he was only known as a racer and driver to those working at Shelby American. While the Roadster was an incredible car, it wasn't particularly competitive internationally as its top speed was limited aerodynamically to about 165 miles per hour. Which is terrifying. Yeah. In that little thing. Yes. Shelby's own desire to beat Ferrari wouldn't happen with the Roadster, much to his chagrin. The Roadster's open-top design wouldn't allow the car to be competitive with the Ferrari's sleek, hardtop wind slicers. Wind slicer. Also, that big old mouth in the front was just eating up air. Eating up air. He was tearing up national races in the U.S. and being passed on straightaways over in Europe. At this time, Ford was in a bind. In a bind. They had just, I like having a hype man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like doing it. Yeah, they had just taken, dude, is this a new facet of the show? Yeah, maybe. The only podcast with a hype man. I doubt it. <laughs> Probably not. There's like 12 million There's podcasts. a million podcasts. And we're the number one automotive podcast on the planet. Yes. Thank you Thank guys you. so much for listening. I will scream it from the mountaintops <laughs> until the day that I die. <laughs> or until we get unseated by Matt Farah. <laughs> At this time, Ford was in a bind. They had just taken a massive hit with the Edsel, a design flop so profound its name is still commonly used as a cinnamon Cinnamon. Somebody's hungry. Yum, yum, yum. Synonym for a failed product. Ford was stuck as baby boomers were coming of age with a ton of disposable income and little interest in a sensible sedan. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Ford needed relevance. A young Ford executive named Lee Iacocca convinced, convinced Ford the answer was a sports car. You don't really hear about auto manufacturers making something for young buyers anymore. No. Uh, Scion. Well, it's because young people <laughs> oh, don't have any money. Yeah. yeah. Scion, the, the brand that like died failed. like 15 yeah. years ago. It's because like our, we keep getting our age pushed back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess they do make stuff for young people. It's just not that exciting to us. Yeah. Like, I mean, every CUV is for young people. I think maybe young people don't want a I, ton of sports I guess cars. like the BRZ and 86 BRZ, are like young, for young yeah. people. But the, like, the, I'm the, saying like the, these, that was like, like all the advertising for all these cars of this era was like literally commercials of like teenagers. Yeah. You don't uh, want to be a cuck, do you? Yeah. Go get a Ford. <laughs> yeah, the, exactly, Joe. Thank you. But uh, I, th I think every commercial is like There's that. like yeah. less machismo in pop culture now. That's true. And so but, getting a CUV or whatever is the play for young people yeah i don't think i mean yeah you're right about the machismo part but i think like there's still an angle to being like hey don't you want a cool car you can like have fun in there's that's still an a, angle that could that could be a thing but it's like i think that's like what 
the Kia Soul is, though. Like, it's not. Yeah, but they got hamsters driving those things. You know, like, mm -hmm. how am I supposed to relate to that? <laughs> yeah, but like, like the car, the car to have fun in. The ad is Brie Larson ripping yeah, through something. Yeah, yeah. Like it's like, hey, you know what's fun? Being an Avenger. Yeah, Aren't yeah. you an Avenger? That's this true. is the kind of car that I know. She's, she's having fun with those ones, dude. She's for sure. Oh, she yeah. is. She told me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Cool. I was the little boy in Room. He's <laughs> <laughs> still talking. Nice. Mm -hmm. So anyway, unfortunately, Ford did not have a sports car, so they sought to buy what they could not manufacture. Ferrari, at that time the world's greatest manufacturer of race cars, was underwater due to its focus on creating winning race cars. They only sold a few of their handmade cars and only did so to fund their racing team. But in 1963, Ford was negotiating with Enzo Ferrari to buy the company outright. In the final hours of closing the deal, Enzo rejected the contract, arguing he did not want Ford controlling the Ferrari race team. Well, that was a the, sneaky thing on yeah, Lee Iacocca's yeah. part, right? Right. Or so, on uh, Frank Hank the Deuce's part. Yeah, oh, that yeah. was like a little sneak. Like, yeah. that like was, here's so the contract, they, and then when they was yeah. mm -hmm. turned around. So, yeah, they, they had agreed to terms. Ford was going to buy Ferrari's road car division. Ferrari was going to maintain control of the race team. Yeah. And yeah. at the very last minute, Hank the Deuce was like, actually, yeah. we're going to take it all. Soon after rejecting the deal, Ferrari sold a large stake to Fiat, revealing that they had only considered Ford's offer in order to leverage a better position from a European company. Oh, you don't mess with the Il Commendatore. To top it all off, Enzo, quote, told Ford representatives that he would have never sold under those terms, nor, he added, would he sell to an ugly company that builds <laughs> ugly cars and an I ugly factory. I would have factor. never sold that to it at that, under those terms. Yeah, the factory is so ugly. It has no espresso uh, machine. It's ugly. It's ugly car. <laughs> they call it uh, Porco Fiduzu. Yeah. Pig face, Italian. <laughs> He also went on to say that Henry Ford II would never live up to what his grandfather had created. So Damn, there dude. you go. That's a burn. It was, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't only Henry Ford, Hank the Deuce, who had a bone to pick. It is also true that Carroll Shelby had his own resentment towards Enzo Ferrari. Early in Shelby's career, he had actively tried to drive for Ferrari, with Enzo allegedly responding, quote, Well, uh, it would be an honor for him to drive, but I won't pay him any money. <laughs> Shelby was also well aware of Enzo's shoddy treatment of drivers, often considering them disposable. I take a one, I toss him in the trash. I take a two, I toss him in the trash. A Did driver of three, a ghost in the Well, we trash. talked about this a I blow weeks my ago, nose right? with him. We yeah, talked about this in the Phil Hill ago. one. Yeah. He really, like, I mean, he was such a megalomaniac that he just used pitted drivers against each other. Yeah. He famously, like, promised Moss a spot on his team, and when he showed up in Italy, he was like, nah, I don't think so. I don't think so. And so Moss bye had bye. this, like, lifelong... Yeah. You know, bitterness towards Enzo and Ferrari. That's why, he dude, he would do things like tell one driver that he loved him and then show up to a party with uh, the other driver. Yeah. And be like, what? One of Shelby's friends, Luigi Musso, was one of the six drivers who died driving Ferraris in the 1957 and 58 Jeez, seasons. Six drivers in one season. Six. Quote That son of a killed my friend Musso. Shelby said, And he killed others too. <laughs> With the Roadster in the books, Shelby was desperate to find a design that could not only compete with Ferrari, but win internationally. And as luck would have it, Ford was now looking to embarrass Ferrari and sell sports cars. Nice. Luckily for both, Ferrari had recently changed homologation rules through a pressure campaign. In the Appendix J modifications in the European rules. Oh, I know them so well. A car could Appendix now change. Yeah. Oh, nice. I love this one. Yeah. A car could now change the entire body or the chassis, but not both. Uh, this oh. allowed significant alterations to a car that would not have to be represented by a large production scale. That's a fun rule. It's pretty fun. That's like a party rule. Yeah. So Peter came to Shelby and asked to redesign the Roadster. Shelby told him it would have to be on his own time and wouldn't be given any money to do so. Despite these parameters. Peter agreed. <laughs> pay him. Yeah, pay him. Didn't he held a grudge because Enzo said he wouldn't pay him? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. 
Peter used some inspiration from drawings he had discovered in the GM library, specifically the work on aerodynamics by Dr. Wunderbald Kalm and Reinhard von Koenig von Scheinfeld. <laughs> Hopefully that's the last time I have to say those names. Apologies to all of our German listeners, but let's face it, you guys have way more to apologize about. <laughs> Dr. Com and von Koenig von Scheinfeld. I love that show. <laughs> I love Koenig von Scheinfeld. <laughs> hey, what is the deal with aerodynamics? <laughs> what is the deal with not cutting through fiend? It's like you can't see it there, but when you go fast, it's al already it's so there. <laughs> what, is, what is the deal? Is it liquid? Is it solid? <laughs> no soup for you. Hey, I'm you are a soup regular guy. <laughs> <laughs> you are a soup member of our military. Oh my god. <laughs> Their position was that the roof line should be kept as flat as possible, drop slightly, then chop the car behind the rear wheels. As we mentioned in the intro, it was the back, the flat back. This concept was known as the K-line tail. And it, dude, it looks so good. It's like one of my favorite design elements of any car. Mm -hmm. Peter had initially brought the idea of this rear end to Bill Mitchell at GM on the Stingray and was told by Mitchell, kid, that's got to be the ugliest looking crap I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I'm old. <laughs> but with this new design, he was ready to use this rear end. He told Shelby that the coupe would look unlike any other race car on the planet, and Shelby replied, I don't care what the hell it looks like, as long as it goes fast. Yeehaw! <laughs> Anyone want chili? Who wants more chili? Oh, don't say you're full, Apple Dean. <laughs> <laughs> when thinking back on the process of building the coupe, Peter muses, I didn't even have a drawing board. I taped butcher paper on the floor in the accounting office, and that's where I made all the drawings for the wooden buck. I drew it up in quarter scale. I took 35-millimeter photographs, and I projected the slides onto the wall. AC wouldn't give Carol their engineering drawings, so we had to reverse engineer the chassis. In an oral history of what would become the Daytona Coupe, one of the most striking elements was how loathed the project was by the rest of the garage. Most of the guys in the shop thought the coupe was a stupid idea, so John Olson, who's a mechanic fabricator, and Ken Miles, the famous driver uh, and builder played by Christian Bale, they basically pretty much built it themselves. The majority of the other employees were focused on making small changes to the Roadster, while Shelby was beginning to work with Ford in a more formal arrangement, uh, the streetcars. So Peter was largely alone, aside from Olson and Miles. And I tell you what, if you got to hang out with two guys, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a more fun two than Olsen and Miles. <laughs> side smirk? What do they call him? Side smirk. He would talk out of the side of his mouth, and they called him something like side smile or side smirk or something like that. <laughs> side face. <laughs> Horse mouth. <laughs> As Peter's prototype neared 75% completion, Shelby brought in Benny Howard, an aerodynamics consultant who had deep reservations about the car's design. He even famously told Peter regarding the flat plate that constituted the car's entire rear end, if what you say were true, <laughs> airplanes wouldn't fly. <laughs> Real nerd, that guy. Nevertheless, the prototype moved forward to testing. Shelby's go-to driver and engineering specialist, Ken Miles, old horse mouth himself, would test the <laughs> prototype at Riverside two weeks before Daytona. It immediately broke the lap record and caused Miles to question if the gear ratio was wrong. After the first test where Miles went 3.5 seconds a lap faster than it in the Roadster, the driver called Shelby to the track and reported, This thing's a rocket ship. Okay, his nickname is Sidebite, which is <laughs> Side really cool. Bite. That's sick. But also another nickname he had was Teddy Teabag. Teddy Teabag. Oh, because <laughs> he's British. Oh, yeah. By the time the coupe returned from testing to Shelby America, the shop had been cleared out so everybody could start working on it. K-1 
Ken Miles still didn't believe it could reasonably go as fast as it did and pulled the differential to verify the gear ratio. Ken counted the teeth himself. Meanwhile, Shelby insisted that the car would be racing at Daytona, which was quickly approaching. After only two weeks of testing, the car was sent to Daytona, where it caught on fire during a pit stop on lap 209 and was unable to finish. Oh, no. It did, however, succeed in scaring the crap out of Enzo Ferrari, all them little meatballs dropping out of his pants. <laughs> ploop, 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 ploop. Because the Daytona Coupe was leading the race and outperforming Enzo's car before the fire broke out. I just thought of a good meme. Yeah? And anyone who's watching this, feel free to make it. Make it a meme. It'd be funny to have, like, an American gear. Uh-huh. And there's, you know, like... All the teeth, and then a British gear, and oh, it's, it's all like bad teeth. It's missing some. Nice, yeah. nice, yeah. nice, nice, nice. They have universal health care. <laughs> Shelby decided that the coupe would go on to the 1964 Le Mans, the oldest active endurance race in the world. In this punishing 24-hour race where conditions change drastically from day to night and the winner is decided by the most distance traveled in the allotted time, the Daytona performed incredibly well. Piloted by Dan Gurney and Bob Bondurant, the Shelby American Daytona Coupe won the GT category a lap ahead of the nearest Ferrari GTOs. They also finished in fourth overall, missing first only because of a cracked oil cooler that required lowering the RPMs after lap 400. Wow. Then, two years later, the top three winners of Le Mans were all Fords, designed using Peter Brock's Daytona Coupes as their foundation. Take that, Enzo. How about that, Enzo? How about you shove that in your fizzoli and smoke it? (laughs) After the win at Le Mans, Ford's interest in partnership with Carroll Shelby flourished. However, with a new influx of both cash and personnel, Shelby had little use for Peter. What? His focus was on the new Ford GTs, and Peter was let go. What the hell, dude? The most recent sale of one of the six existing Daytona Coupes, $1.5 million in 2021. Wow. That's lower than I thought it would be. That's yeah. a lot lower. Uh, that's not the most expensive one, though. I, I know there's like a $15 million one. Yeah, that's the one I have. <laughs> we'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Peter started Brock Racing Enterprises and began modifying Hino's, a very small Japanese brand best known as a truck manufacturer that were beginning to look into selling sedans in the U.S. market. Around the same time, a small upstart racing group called the California Sports Car Club had worked with the L.A. Times to create a new event called the Los Angeles Times Mirror Grand Prix at Riverside. The focus of the new race would not be on the race cars, but on modified sedans. Okay. As a result of the money put up for the race, most of the big names in racing at the time came to compete. Folks like Brabham, Penske, Maserati. So when Peter won an opening event with his tiny 1,000cc Hino in its second year, it was significant. Yeah, Yeah. people were like, he know what he's doing. (laughs) Hino was not a well-known manufacturer, even in Japan. Winning a race in America gave not only a boost to the brand in its home country, but also for its driver. As a result of the race, Dotson would send Peter two vehicles for BRE to race, and he'd become the head of their West Coast racing division. They said, we're not going to pay you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he knows still around. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh. They make trucks. Oh. Peter would go on to crush four Baja 1000 endurance races with the 240Z and the Dotson 510 before they disbanded their racing program in 1972 after Peter's departure. Peter's life after racing was a natural step, even if it didn't seem like it. The man who was told, if what you say were true, airplanes wouldn't fly, try read books sometime. Yeah, maybe try read books sometime. Maybe try crack books sometime. Maybe try crack books sometime. By a world-class aerodynamics professional would go on to found Ultralight Products, the world's largest hang gliding company. Yeah, when I was a kid, I saw Far Away Home or Fly Away Home. Fly Away Home with yeah. the geese. With the geese. And I couldn't understand why my mom wouldn't let me get an ultralight. 
<laughs> yeah, why not? I was like, Mom. You don't I, have to drive me to school it's anymore. It's not even a real plane. I could uh, land it on a football field. Yeah. Maybe try a fly plane sometime. <laughs> uh, Mom, maybe let me try fly plane sometime. God! <laughs> Peter would design and create the Comet, which became the world's biggest selling hang Dad, gliders of all time. Dad, let me go time. to therapy. Jeez. Uh, Maybe you should go too. <laughs> While we would also love to talk about hang gliding, there's apparently a real lack of hang gliding history that's easily available. I'm so I'm sorry. Yeah, because yeah, everyone dies before yeah. they write anything that's down. That's insane. Peter Brock <laughs> made the ultralight. That's like, that's crazy as hell. Yeah, yeah man. Peter Brock's story is an almost impossibly perfect version of the American dream. One where hard work, dedication, and perseverance result in almost Forrest Gump-like successes. His contributions to automotive aerodynamics are still apparent today. As he says, if you look at a Toyota Prius today, it's a Daytona all over. <laughs> They're all smoothed up in the front, chopped off in the back, so all modern cars are designed like the Daytona, and I should be making money off of every single one of them. <laughs> While he was left out of the storyline in Ford v Ferrari. Yeah, what the hell? Well, that's not about that car. I know. So I'm still be that part, I'm cool if he was like, out. "Hey, oh, it's our friend Peter Brock coming that's to grab a different his car, his yeah, backpack." It's different. Yeah. Come on, no. They're all smoothed <laughs> up in the front, chopped off in the back, so all modern cars are designed like the Daytona, except for the ones that aren't Priuses without flatbacks. Yeah. So. But still. Anyway. Dude, Peter Brock, cool dude. Yeah. Yep, very cool Favorite story. Favorite time in American automotive history. It's when I just picture When a guy like who's a 21 years old can mm -hmm. do this crazy stuff. Yeah, there's just like a bar out by Willow Springs. Mm -hmm. They all run into each other at it, and they're like, hey, you want to design the new Corvette? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I just graduated middle school. It's <laughs> it's easy to write him off and be like, oh, he was so lucky, but then his first car was the Corvette. Yeah, Stingray, yeah. that's pretty like, sick. Oh, okay, and then he did design talent. a car that, like, destroyed at the <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so pretty cool. Maybe we're just mad at ourselves. Yeah, yeah this is just projection. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, figure out why you're upset and don't lash out at other people. Nah. Thanks for listening, guys. <laughs> we have some uh, listener mail. Hey, guys, my name is Joshua. I'm a mechanical engineering student from Australia. Mm. I love your podcast and YouTube channel. I was telling my dad about the episode about Roger Bensky and how you guys said he was a bit of an a-hole. My dad had a different story to tell. Oh, okay. okay. I'm, I'm okay. here for this. Okay. Way back in the 1990s, or as we call them in Australia, the 1919s, <laughs> my dad used to work for Detroit Diesel as an apprentice mechanic, and he was awarded Apprentice of the Year, where he and some other apprentices got to go to the Gold Coast Indy 300 in Australia. Okay. I love that rice. Gold Coast. Back in the 1919s, Penske had a 60% share in the Detroit Diesel Company, so the top apprentices got to meet Roger Penske. My dad was expecting to get a handshake from him, and that's all, but he said Roger was extremely friendly and offered to show them around. He took them through the pits where he showed them the cars and told the boys that they were the future of the company and he said the cars weren't performing well and asked my dad if he had any ideas on how to make the cars faster. Wow. After that, they went and sat in the pit box with him and he brought them food and drinks. <laughs> His cars didn't end up doing that well, but regardless, after the race, he took my dad and the other apprentices for a night on the town to the casinos and to some bars. Dad said he was very generous, paying for everything. After that, he took them to the strip club where he bought what? the 19-year-olds a good time. And there's a winking, smiling face at the end of that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Dad's what? little story changed my perspective of him. I hope you guys find it funny. Been listening to past guests since I was 15. What? And I've really grown up with the cool stories you guys tell. Oh, Keep being awesome. Would like to hear some stories about sprint cars and as I pit crew for a little team. Cool. Maybe covering some greats like Donnie Schatz or <laughs> Steve Kinzer would be a cool episode idea. I don't know. 
Love Donor Media. Keep making great content, guys. I hope to come to the States one day soon. From Josh. Well, thank you very much, Josh, for that cool story. Yeah. Like, he's like a ruthless businessman. He uh, makes decisions that other people would call tough decisions uh, that would, uh, and, you know, yeah, I'm, you gotta be ruthless in business. Got to, and that's why both of you are fired. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Past right. Gas. Uh, tell your friends about this. Thank you guys for listening and making us the number one automotive podcast in the world. Mm-hmm. Thank you uh, very much. We don't live in the podcast studio. We lead lives. If you want to know more about those lives, check out our <laughs> social medias. Nolan at Nolan Sykes. Nolan J. Sykes. Thank you. Uh, Joe at Joe G. Weber. Me at James Pumphrey. Circle A, J A M E S. You don't need to do the circle A. People know what it is. My socials have plateaued and I need leverage. Go tell your family you love them. Check out our other podcast, The Donut Racing Show, hosted by Nolan, Elizabeth Blackstock, and Alanis King. Thank you. They cover F1. It's really, really good. It's slowly climbing the charts. It's not number one, but. It's going. It's, it's going. Really going. It'll We're be going. there soon. It'll be there soon, and then we'll get We're fired coming too. for you, Will Arnett. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Will Arnett. yeah. Honestly, actually, yes, we are. Yeah, we're we are coming to your house, Will. We Arnett. are actually. Yeah, we're, we're starting beef this episode with Will Arnett. Why? Oh, oh, oh. never mind. Oh, maybe we should be nice to him. All right. Anyway, uh, if you want to hear Will Arnett talk about famous people <laughs> he has dinner with, check out the Smartless <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere you get your podcast. Pretty good show. Pretty good show. Uh, Bye. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.